Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Today, we're going to talk about the recent election results in Taiwan. We'll talk about Turkey preparing a potential ground invasion of Syria. And then we'll talk about Russian advances towards the city of Bakhmut. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news, and we'll start with a bit of a correction for last week's story, um, the story we did on China. And in that, I said there was a fire that the fire department couldn't get to because of the COVID restrictions. They were actually unable to get to the building, and this is when I was talking about what sparked the riots. They weren't able to get to this building because there were parked cars in the way, not because of the COVID restrictions. The protests have spawned independently of this event. Uh, I also wanted to say that people were holding... I also said that there were people holding blank pieces of paper, and they did this as a sign of protest, because you can't have, you know, symbols, but blank piece of paper, no symbols. But as it turns out, these people holding these blank pieces of paper were paid agitators bankrolled by the U.S. government being paid somewhere in the vicinity of $200 per person. And this is a means of coordination among these paid agitators. They were not organic. as, uh, And don't get me wrong, the protests themselves were organic. It's just that these people holding these pieces of paper were there to paint an image that wasn't quite representative of the actual general populace that was engaging in these protests. That was to provide the narrative that people were trying to overthrow the Chinese government, that this was some major anti-communist rebellion. Now, thankfully, I was able to see through a lot of the propaganda in my first take. I didn't believe that this was an overthrow attempt of the Chinese government because they weren't calling for that. And even among these people holding these white pieces of paper, even then... Just listening to them, they weren't quite calling for the actual overthrow of the Chinese government. They were just calling for the end of the lockdowns. And some of them wanted accountability from Xi Jinping. Although, now with this new information, it should be noted that the people calling for the resignation of Xi Jinping, many of them were holding these white pieces of paper. So perhaps even that much was not true. So perhaps this is not even going all the way up to Xi Jinping, but is instead, you know, excluding these paid agitators, perhaps these protests are literally only about the COVID lockdowns and the zero COVID policy. That's what it appears to be, although we'll observe as these protests continue, and it's likely uh, that it's going to go the way I said it would, which is what the Chinese would you know, put the protests down first and then we'd see major rollbacks of the lockdown policies. We're seeing some locales roll them back already, but I think that the nationwide zero COVID policy will be rolled back after the protests are dealt with, not before, so the government saves face. And 
the people will be happy. So for the time being, it looks like they're the Chinese government is allowing this to run its course for a little bit before they crack down really hard and try to put people back in their home and restore order. So we'll, we'll see what comes of this, but I felt like the, the correction was necessary. And now we get to the rest of the rapid fire. We have Ursula von der Leyen in a speech to the EU parliament. She brought up Ukrainian casualties. Now, this is the first time, I'm pretty sure the first time, anyone on the the pro-Russia side of this, uh, oh my goodness, <laughs> the pro the pro-Ukraine side of this, this conflict, uh, within the governments, that is, have even mentioned casualties, Ukrainian casualties, uh, they'll, they'll bring up Russian casualties, Russia suffering heavy losses, heavy losses, uh, equipment losses, and all this bad logistics, but no one had ever really discussed Ukraine's losses. And she also went as far as to put a number out there. She didn't just say the Ukrainians were taking these heavy losses and casualties. She put a number out there. And the figure she put out was 100,000 dead. Which is a number that implies a much higher number of casualties once the wounded who aren't dead are counted. And which essentially makes this the third figure that we're now factoring into our our war assessments here. There's the figure that I was working with back in um, the summer and early fall, which was somewhere in the vicinity of thirty to 50,000 Ukrainian losses. Then there was that one story from the, uh, I believe it was the, what was it? The, it was an organization of mothers, right? And it was the Ukrainian wing of this organization. And they had put the figure at almost 400,000, which I thought was insane. But with how censored the war is, it's something we could think about. But my numbers were at thirty to 50,000. So, you know, accounting for the months that have gone by, I'd probably say fifty to 70,000 were at right, now, right about now. So these numbers of dead are roughly in the vicinity of where I myself was looking at for these casualty figures. So, but, but anyway, it's interesting because, again, I'm pretty sure this is the first time a leader on the pro-Ukrainian side has even brought up Ukrainian casualties. Usually it's the Ukraine propaganda role. But this is interesting. Now, from what I can discern... She was using these casualties as a means of rallying more support for Ukraine rather than saying, hey, the Ukrainians are getting beat up. We should pull back from this. So don't don't get the wrong idea. But it was interesting to see and interesting to see where they were putting the numbers at. Now, perhaps they're downplaying the number. Perhaps they are overhyping the number to try to rally support. Either one could be true, but I'll just say that this number is roughly in the vicinity of what I myself was looking at you know, trying to piece together the casualties of this war. And when the war is over, we'll probably have a much more uh, accurate casualty count, especially in the years following. Uh, I'm not sure if we'll get a, a truly accurate one immediately after the war. But anyway, I, I can believe this number. But it was interesting to see nonetheless, and we'll see what comes, especially as there's talk of a Russian winter offensive. And I've been I've been one of those people talking about that. But we have Europe and America 
moving toward, uh, not towards, no, they're moving forward with a price cap idea for Russian gas, uh, which is that they want to put a artificial cap on the price of Russian natural gas. And the number that they're working with right now is anywhere between 60 to 65. There was one idea floated of making it $30 a barrel. That would be the, the cap. I believe Poland was in favor of that. Now, regardless of what the number ends up being, it's not going to work. Namely because the Russians have flat out said they're just not going to give oil to any country that participates in it. So you can... If you ca if you try to cap the price of Russian gas, you won't get Russian gas, and then the the price cap is effectively zero. Well, to uh, the the oh yeah yeah the cap is effectively zero, but ends up in practice being infinity because you just can't buy it. It's too expensive for you to buy because the Russians won't give it to you. So it's not going to work. And plus, even if we did put it into effect. If it's not the market price, you're just going to end up with shortages. You're going to end up with shortages. People, either too much is going to be left by the wayside because you're paying too much for it. And no one will be able to afford it. That's if you set the, the cap really, really high. Or you set the cap really, really low. And everyone thinks they can afford it. But the gas still costs what the gas costs, and eventually the suppliers will run out of the gas. Because it's being produced for a certain price. It, it's market economics. You can't get around the market. They're, they're just, you can't get around it. We've tried this for a couple, what, centuries now? You can't beat the market. The market exists. It's a thing that happens... It's not something we can control as much as we like to think we can control it. The market is the market. And price caps don't control it. They usually just lead to shortages. So this isn't this isn't going to work. But that's not stopping America and Europe from moving through with this. And I can only imagine it's going to hurt the Europeans the most. Because once they engage in this price cap, the Russians are just going to not give them gas. And Europe will freeze even harder than they were already so there's that but good news we have in ethiopia because tigray has reported that 65 percent of their fighters have left the front lines uh, these are the the zone of contact between them and the federal ethiopian army and this is a number put out to us according to tadasi wareda this is the commander-in-chief of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, i.e. the Tigrayan army. So it's looking like that peace plan is moving forward and we're already in the, de the disarming phase and the disarming appears to be going smoothly. So it does appear that Ethiopia's civil war is conclusively coming to an end, which is good, which is good. So, there's that, and China will probably step in with their Belt and Road, and the Ethiopians will accept, and they'll have, perhaps, a swift recovery. I mean, they're a rich country. They have lots of mineral resources, and lots of people. So, they have the makings of a rich country, they just need energy and infrastructure, which the Belt and Road can provide. We also have, uh, speaking of potentially rich countries... We have Peru, uh, and Peru's southern Andes region is suffering a major drought, which is something we're noticing as a theme around the world, drought. 
on top of you know the, the Russo-Ukrainian war creating an artificial drought in Ukraine. Uh, in Italy, a bomb went off at the home of a staff member for the Italian embassy in Greece. So it's not in Italy, it's in Greece. The, a bomb went off at the home of a staff member for the Italian embassy. Another bomb was located that didn't explode. And the, the bomb that went off damaged one of the cars that went off in the garage. But this marks the second time Italian officials have been targeted by supposedly Ukrainian bad actors. And the second time that, has ha that this has happened since their latest elections. So there's a there's a bit of a correlation that I've noticed. I'm not sure if that's the causation, or if maybe the the U.S. is somehow behind this. But either way, I do find that ever so slightly suspicious that these attacks on Italy the the first one was foiled. That they, these the attackers were caught by the Italian police before they were able to do anything, and now we have this bomb going off. Thankfully, it didn't kill anybody, but it could have. I mean, what if they? What if this person had got in their car and then the bomb goes off and boom? It's very strange that these attacks and these attempted attacks now start happening after Italy's election and not any time before, right? Because this war has been going on for months now. It Ukraine has had these weapons for months now, but only after Italy has an election that isn't necessarily favorable to Ukraine do we start seeing these supposedly Ukrainian agitators attacking Italy and the Italian government and officials from the Italian government. I find it suspicious, to say the least. And uh, Scott Ritter warned against something like this. He warned way back in like June or July. He he was I was watching the Scott Ritter little news channel. He warned about this. He said, "What happens when all these weapons were given to the Ukrainians that which end up on the black market fall into the wrong hands?" And we're seeing the consequences of exactly what he warned against. Now maybe these are these are paid sponsors by the US. Maybe these are sponsored by the Ukrainian government. Either way, they wouldn't be a they wouldn't be in a position to do this were it not for all the aid and weapons and money that we've given to Ukraine. This is exactly what he warned against. I'll just throw that out there. And we have, at the very end here, we have a, the U.S. defector, Edward Snowden, taking the oath of allegiance to Russia. And we have Biden and Macron meeting in the White House, where they reaffirmed U.S. French, uh, the U.S.-French alliance and promised to maintain a strong... Uh, God bless my heart. A strong uh, uh, transatlantic alliance uh, to support democracy and depose Russia and China. Oh, oh! I just want to go home. I just want to go home. But alas, I'm stuck with these people. For now. For now. But that's all I got for the rapid fire news. And we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. All right. Time to get into the meat of this episode, and we'll start with some interesting election results on Taiwan. And this actually happened on Monday of last week, but I was unable to cover it. The uh, Firstly, I didn't know it happened, and secondly, the episode was pretty jam-packed as was. But now we have a week of retrospect to look at this. The ruling party in Taiwan suffered a major defeat, uh, actually a landslide, 
President Tsai Ing-wen, which is the president of said leading ruling party, she had called this election a referendum on her presidency and on her policy. And then they lost. The KMT, or the Kuomintang Party, won this election again in a landslide. And the KMT, is this is the party that still views Taiwan as the Republic of China, and they remain committed to the One China policy. You know, with the obvious caveat that they are the one true China, not the communists. Uh, so the, the sore loser in them still remains strong. Uh, so that that's the winners of this election. The losers, the ruling party, the DPP, or Democratic Progressive Party, this is the party of Tsai Ing-wen, they, being more favorable towards Taiwanese independence, lost. And considering that the DPP has been in power for nearly two four-year terms, the result of this election was likely to happen. Uh, I mean... Uh, in that the KMT were likely to win the majority in the next election anyway. Because uh, when I looked at this to try to see if there was a... Because there, there was a lot of hype. They were saying this is the, the worst defeat in like 36 years. And when I look at it, I'm like, oh. It's not like they were, they were just the dominant power for decades. And then all of a sudden they got overthrown by the KMT. It's actually been a back and forth between the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, of... Tsai Ing-wen and general Taiwanese independence support for that idea. It's been a back and forth between them and the Kuomintang for decades now. Like, even going back to 2000, you'd have the DPP in party for two terms, uh, two four-year periods. Uh, and then you, then the next election, you'd have the Kuomintang come in, and they'd stick around for like eight years. And then the DPP would come back. So, the DPP has been in power for about six out of those eight years. So, it was likely that the KMT were going to win the next major election anyway. But this election came two years early. Uh, the, given, if we go with the trend, there wasn't, this wasn't supposed to happen for another two years. Uh, it's only been six years since the, the, f the beginning of that you know, two-term cycle I mentioned. So, this came two years early. And the KMT lost, uh, oh, not, not the KMT, the DPP lost about 17 out of Taiwan's 22 municipalities. So it's, again, likely that this would have happened anyway, just two years later. But I feel that recent events have probably played a major role in that early swing, you know. Most notably, the Russo-Ukrainian War and Pelosi's visit, along with the immediate aftermath of that visit, which was China putting the island under a mock blockade with their navy and their air force. Those aren't, those aren't things that a uh, voting population are going to take lightly, especially when it came as a result of the ruling party being sympathetic towards outsiders promoting Taiwanese independence. Knowing full well that the, the other guy in the room, the, the big red panda in the room, had no tolerance for that type of thing. So, it's likely that those events played the biggest role in this massive shift, which came two years early. 
and so the, there's the Pelosi aspect of this and the Ukraine aspect of this is everyone in their mom who has seen what's gone down in Ukraine are immediately looking at Taiwan and going, well, that's going to be, you, you're going to be, that's you. <laughs> that's you. Although those poor Ukrainians who have no electricity and are dying in droves on the front lines in World War One-like conditions in the Donbass and World War Two-like conditions everywhere else, that's going to be you when the Chinese come invade. And so it's likely that they saw that what's going on in that war and concluded they want absolutely none of that for their country. They want absolutely none of that. And you combine that, that your next mentality of most outside observers with their own, you know, sense of urgency, which has been lit under them by the fact that Ukraine got invaded by Russia with the, the threat that it was going to happen to them being made into something that they could see. Because before, it's, oh, it's far away. Oh, it'll never happen. Ukraine gets invaded. Oh, wow. Countries still, you know, do that. Like, you know, countries that aren't the United States. Do they still do that? Oh, wow. And Ukraine is a small country and needed all the West to come save it. Against Russia. And then you have Pelosi visiting your island. And then all of a sudden, your island is put under a siege. The airspace was actually blocked for a period of time. Nothing could get in or out for a short period of time. The Chinese backed off, but demonstrated exactly what they were going to do in the event that they ended up at war with this island. Which, you know, conveniently for my own analysis, I'll, I'll just say this is great for my analysis and my credibility, because that's exactly what I said the Chinese would do. So, you have the threat being made real by Russia invading Ukraine, and everyone comparing what's happening to Ukraine to what will happen to Taiwan when China invades and getting that into their minds and then being able to see it because that's what China's going to do in the event that they actually end up at war. That's what China's going to do. So they got to see it, not just not just think about it, not just feel, oh, maybe we're next. No, what happens if we're next? They went beyond questioning it. They got to see it courtesy of Nancy Pelosi taking this ill-advised trip there. So when you see the danger, that's when people act. And I, I feel like those events all came together for this result that we see in this election. Where the KMT won 17 out of the 22 municipalities and the DPP won only 5 of them. So th th those are my explanations for as to why we're seeing this massive swing two years early than what the pattern would suggest. But, uh, aside from this, all these coming together to get them to reevaluate their position in relation to China, uh, at least for the time being, because, you know, the, the pattern happens, which means that the flip in the other direction will happen in about six to eight years now. But the question that should be asked now with these elections is, how will their policy towards China change? And will the results of this election save them from an invasion or perhaps convince the Chinese that an invasion will no longer be necessary. I think it won't change as much with the relationship with China. I think Taiwan will become a little bit more cooperative. But ultimately they're they're gonna they're gonna stick to the one China policy, right? 
So there's that. That'll maybe put the Chinese at ease just a little bit. But ultimately, I don't see the... I don't see the direction changing too much. Because at this point in the game, Taiwan isn't exactly in the driver's seat of its future. Uh, the, the U.S. has more veto power over them than they do. And the Chinese have the ultimate veto power. And I don't see this changing China's opinion. I, I don't. Like, sure, the Taiwanese might might take a friendlier approach to China. Maybe they'll try to have direct talks between Xi Jinping and whoever the new president of Taiwan happens to be, there were there were direct talks occasionally between Xi Jinping and Tsai Ing-wen when Tsai Ing-wen was the president. She stepped down, by the way. Um, I I almost forgot to mention that. Uh, that's a very relevant detail here. But I imagine that with the KMT in charge, maybe there'll be more direct talks, maybe a, an establishment of a, a hotline if there's not one, and. A, a real earnest attempt to try to defuse the situation here. But I'm not sure that it's going to change much. Because again, Taiwan is not in the driver's seat here. Uh, they're, they're, not, they're not even in the passenger seat. They're in the back. <laughs> they're in the back seat. America's in the passenger seat. They can put their, we can put our hands on the wheel whenever we want. But China's in the driver's seat here. And what China decides is what's going to happen. They have their foot on the gas. They can either put their foot in the gas. They can put their foot in the brake. America can't do that. We can just, you know, kind of steer and maneuver. And uh, we can interfere with the direction of the wheel. We, we don't get to speed up or slow down what happens here. We don't get to do that. China is in the driver's seat. And I don't think that this is going to change much. I really lean towards the answer to the question, is this going to save them from an invasion? I lean towards that answer being no. Because just like the results of this election were likely to happen based off Taiwan's election patterns, uh, what's to stop the KMT from losing after about an eight-year period? Because remember, they, it was on and off since at least 2000. It was the KM, the Kuomintang, then the Democratic Progressive Party, then the Kuomintang again, then the Democratic Progressive Party, and the Democratic Progressive Party had still had two years left in them if this cycle had continued, but they got defeated early, two years early. So what that shows is, well, the KMT might get defeated two years early, or they'll be, they can either be in for eight years or they'll be in for six years, but Judging off that election pattern of just about eight years of power, sure, the KMT may have won now, and things might simmer down between China and Taiwan now, but the reverse will also inevitably be true, at least should this pattern continue. Maybe the pattern will break, but we don't have any indication of that yet. The reverse will, judging by this pattern, be true as well, which is in six to eight years' time, the Democratic Progressive Party are going to defeat the Kuomintang in the election, and then they'll come to power. And then they'll, they'll go right back to what they were doing before. So, with the election results like this, ultimately Taiwan re remains a liability to China, even though if... 
even if the Kuomintang are a friendlier government, which I'm not entirely sure if they will be, but at the very least, they'll be more willing to talk with China, and they believe that there is only one China. So maybe they'll be that. But ultimately, Taiwan remains a liability to the Chinese. A loose end that China has already decided to deal with, and most likely they've decided to deal with it by force. So, I just, I really don't see the results changing much, given how little influence Taiwan has over its own future at this point. Like, and, you know, we in America have a great deal of the blame. We bear a great deal of the blame for that. But that's the way it is. Taiwan is not in the driver's seat. They're not even in the passenger seat. They're in the back. With, they are in the back. And it's, I, I just don't see it changing much. I mean, China has already done the dress rehearsal for the air and sea blockade of Taiwan. They already So they've already done the planning for what they're going to do. All that, all that we missed in that dress rehearsal was the ground invasion, the, the, the naval and air invasion, rather than just the naval and air blockade. All we were missing was the missile barrage and the strategic air campaign to wipe out the Taiwanese Air Force. And that's what we were missing. I, with, we're, we're this far in. I mean, it, it feels like we're in too deep turn this around. Now, uh, maybe the Taiwanese can pull it off. Maybe the Kuomintang are going to put in this guy who's just going to be a, a, a god at diplomacy. It's a possibility. It happens every now and then. You know, with every country, you just get that guy who just really knows what they're doing and knows how to play their own political system to the ends that they seek to achieve. Maybe it'll happen, but I'm not sure. It would take one hell of a diplomatic campaign to turn this around if it's only Taiwan. Because the United States is not going to change course. We still want Taiwan to fight China. The Republican, the new Republicans who are going to come into power in January of next year, they're all, they were already talking about we'll send troops to Taiwan. We're going we're gonna to send our own men to get the job done. And, it's, oh, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, you people have learned nothing. You've all learned nothing. <laughs> they have learned nothing. They're doubling down on Taiwan. And, and they're not doubling down on Taiwan making peace with China. No, they're, they're doubling down on Taiwan being an unsinkable aircraft carrier for us to fight China. So they would have to go against America first and uh, make the attempt to get America to back off and then immediately after they'd have to turn around and you know reshore their sovereignty and independence and semi independence from Ty- not Taiwan from China and assert to China that we're not a province of you we're a province of we are Chinese but we're not a province of you we're not your province. We're we're the real China, and that they, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to do both. But maybe they will. We shall see. That's Taiwan for you. Very very interesting results. 
I was, it certainly caught me off guard. And I, I already knew I would have to talk about it because those results are just, you have to talk about them. Because those are, those are game changing, don't get me wrong. Those are game changing. It's just, are they going to be game changing in the way that they can save Taiwan? Or are they, in my view, more likely game changing in that they might have bought Taiwan more time? That, that's what I think happened. Taiwan might have bought itself some more time. But they're going to have to make some radical radical changes if they want to save themselves from this disaster that, you know, quite frankly, we, we got them into. So anyway, <laughs> now we'll talk about the potential of Turkey conducting a ground invasion of Syria. So let's get into this. There's been some increasing talk of Turkey doing exactly that, conducting a ground invasion of Syria. With the chief among these uh, talkers being Erdogan himself, who has been talking of it as though it was a sure, as if it was surefire, as if it was inevitable, it was going to happen. Almost as if it had already happened. Uh, he was uh, uh, like he he was saying things like the airstrikes were just the beginning, that Turkey was going to establish a strip of land along its southern border that would prevent future attackers from crossing and hurting Turkey, and even saying that the tunnels the terrorists use for safety and he's talking about the Kurds here will become their graves. So the. That's some uh, ground invasion type rhetoric. And as of late, he hasn't exactly been too hyperbolic in his statements. Like he, he exaggerates sometimes, but he's serious enough to where those exaggerations mean something. So there is a strong possibility that, that this does happen, especially in light of what happened a few weeks ago. Because this didn't come out of thin air. This is the latest escalation, uh, not against the Syrian government. I, I know we're talking about a, a ground invasion of Syria, but this isn't an escalation of against the Syrian government, as strange as it says, as it sounds to say that. But this is an escalation against the Kurdish militant groups in the region, namely the KPP, who Turkey holds as being responsible for the recent bombing that happened in the streets of Istanbul about two weeks ago. So, we've been covering the string of events which have come out since that bombing happened, you know, from, from the rejection of U.S. condolences to the airstrikes that Turkey's been conducting on various targets in Syria, with the airstrikes he mentioned before, when he said that they were just the beginning. Turkey has been very active lately. Uh, increasingly so, and continually escalatory in their actions. We've also covered, along with those actions, the strain that all this, the, the fallout from that bombing has caused to America's relations with Turkey. Especially as Turkey now turns its guns on those other U.S. allies, a.k.a. the Kurds. The overt ally, Turkey, versus the covert ally, the Kurds. That's how I've sort of phrased this. And America's option, that they've, that the option that they've taken, is not to say anything. Because if you say one thing, you're going to be backing one ally over the other. Or you could say nothing. 
Now, my option was always to go home, but if we're not going to go home, then I guess saying nothing is the next best choice. But it's put America in a pretty difficult position here. But back to the topic of the Turkish ground invasion of Syria, if it happens, if it happens, and it, it looks increasingly as though it may, although I, I can't quite confirm that it will or won't, Turkey is still a bit of an unpredictable country with a mildly unpredictable leader. I won't, I won't say he's, I won't say Erdogan is unpredictable. It's just that he can be unpredictable at times. And right now he's a little unpredictable. So if this happens, this ground invasion, it would confirm my belief that Turkey has set its sights on expanding southward. If you'll remember way back to the earlier days of the podcast, the, oh, the, the cringe days, I would speak of other geopolitical commentators like George Friedman and Peter Zion and how they would say that no one knew what direction the Turks would go in. Would they go into the Balkans and reprise the old heart of their empire? Would they go into Ukraine and mess with Russia? Which they were doing a little bit at the beginning of the war, but then they stopped. Would they go into the Caucasus? Would they go into the Middle East? And I said way back then, I believe I even, I alluded to that in my first episode where I sort of talked about some of the things I saw happening and the things I saw potentially happening. Uh, some things I saw happening and potentially happening, I said way back then that looking at how they are trying to exploit the natural gas reserves of the eastern Mediterranean while building up their navy in the process, looking at how they were occupying land in northern Syria, and looking at what they stood to gain from reprising their former imperial holdings not in the Balkans, but in the Middle East. I saw the Middle East as being the real prize. Because what they gain, what they would gain from reprising the empire in the Middle East was far greater than what they would get today if they took back southern Russia or the Balkans or the Caucasus. And I concluded that they were going to go south. Judging by the things that they were doing in the places that they were truly heavily already invested in, as well as the potential gains, I said they would go south. So if this talk of a ground invasion of Syria to fight these Kurdish militants does pan out, it will be more evidence to that assertion of mine. And it will set the tone for some pretty interesting conflicts, because inevitably you're going to run into a number of powers. If, when they go into the Eastern Mediterranean, for the next time they do it, and the next time that you know they commit to the act, where they actually try to exploit the resources there, they're going to run into France and Greece with maybe the assistance of Egypt. So then we'll see the Turkish Navy in action. That could explode into a war between NATO powers, uh, strangely enough. So that there's that. If they go south, you know, into Syria, they're going to be stepping on Russia and Iran's toes. Because Russia and Iran are allied with the Syrian, the Assad government. Turkey, uh, if they step in, 
in the occupying parts of Syria that may put them at odds with Iran and Russia. And if they were to go any farther than that, they would run into Arabia. If they tried to go farther than that in a different direction, they would run into Israel. So this southward expansion will have consequences and a number of new conflicts that the Turks currently don't have to deal with, but would in the future should their southward expansion continue. So if this happens, we'll be able to sort of play that southward expansion forward a little bit and look at some of the conflicts that they'll likely be getting into as they continue southward. That, that's one of the first things that this ground invasion would mean, uh, at least to me. It would also mean Turkey re-entering the Syrian civil war. Although technically this time, on the side of the Syrian government under Assad. Uh, I.e. the winning side. <laughs> Which will eventually mean Turkey having a say in the post-war settlement. I mean, if, if the Iranians and the Russians are working together in the south of Syria, and then the Turks come in, nominally on the same side as them in the north of Syria and American troops are forced out the way by way of the invasion well that's that, that's the end of the Syrian civil war right there that's the end of the war no uh, 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 they'll I, I mean they'll, they'll be on the winning side I mean it's, it's a very strange turn of events but they'll be on technically they'll be on the winning side and this will also mean, eventually, Turkey having a say in the post-war settlement, which is something the folks over at the Duran brought up in their analysis of this situation. And when it comes to them having a say in that, I'm not sure if they'll be in a position to demand territory, which is some of, sort of the, the first thing that comes to mind when you go, oh, I get a seat at the table in the post-war settlement. Oh, well, I'm going to demand this, 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 and this, and uh, this land, this, these resources. I don't know if they'll be able to do that. I think Russia is likely to oppose them in that, and they'll probably oppose Iran in that as well. So it's more likely that Turkey will instead get a number of rights from this. They're probably going to get some extradition rights from the Syrian government, specifically for the extradition of Kurdish militants and anyone else the Turks want. That, plus some significant concessions on market access to Syria for Turkish products and services, and Turkey sets themselves up in a very strong economic position post-war in Syria, of all places. And perhaps getting themselves an economic vassal state, uh, or at the very least just pulling Syria into Turkey's economic orbit. I don't know if they'll be quite a vassal state. They have other competition to call them that. They have Russians who have military bases there. They have the Iranians who have military access there. Or at the very least, the Iranian militias do. And then you'll have Saudi Arabia when the war is over. So there, there's other players at hand here. So I wouldn't quite say Tur Syria would become a, a vassal state of Turkey, or anyone else for that matter. It would be sort of a, a battleground of influence. But the biggest loser in all this would be the Kurds. <laughs> If this ground invasion happens, the Kurds will be the biggest loser, because they put all their eggs in the American basket. But if Turkey does a ground invasion, then America will be forced to pull its troops out of the region to avoid uh, 
uh, friendly fire, so to say. Uh, we are nominally still allies with Turkey by way of NATO, so I guess friendly fire is accurate. But I'll just say this, that had we left Syria like uh, Trump wanted, this wouldn't even concern us, but we didn't, so now it does. And the Kurds are going to be the biggest loser in all this. And Turkey will seize victory from the jaws of defeat. So there'll be a gas hub and there'll be a victor in the Syrian civil war. Two, two birds with one stone. But now, now we get to Ukraine and the city of Bakhmut, which is nearing encirclement. Now, through that, uh, not throughout, throughout the fall and even through the various offensives that Ukraine carried out, Russia has been busy with their own offensive. While Russia was fighting off Ukrainian offensives, then pulling back away from them, all while inflicting high casualty figures upon Ukraine, Russia, through the, the Kherson offensive, the first one, and the second one, which actually got Kherson, throughout the Kharkov offensive, Russia has been continuing its offensive in the Donbass. A slow and steady offensive that has seen the Russians and their allied forces from Donetsk and Luhansk and Chechnya creep across the map, as opposed to the large territorial gains that Ukraine has scored for itself in its recent offensives. And this, this uh, Donbass offensive, is reaching another critical point, with the impending either taking or encirclement of Bakhmut city. It's looking like it may end up being encircled, but there's what the Ukrainians are moving their troops around a little bit, so perhaps they'll withdraw before they get cut off. So, But the Russians are creeping in on this city and increasingly approaching something close to an encirclement. Bakhmut is a city that is said to be a major logistical hub for the Ukrainian forces in Donbass region, as well as a linchpin in Ukraine's defensive line here. And there's been fighting near Bakhmut since late summer, but the Russians have had trouble taking it as the Ukrainian troops in the area are very numerous and heavily entrenched, which probably gives a little bit of a credence to that linchpin idea. Uh, at the very least, it highlights some of the importance of this location, if the Ukrainians are invested so heavily here. But Russia was struggling, uh, at least until now, with the streamlining of their command, which is due to the annexation of the Donbass republics, so now their militias are being integrated into the Russian military formally, which means they have one command structure instead of multiple working together. So, with the streamlining of that command... Uh, courtesy of these annexations, as well as the large numbers of reinforcements now arriving on the scene, some of whom are themselves courtesy of Russia's mobilization, now we have Russia making gains. And they're, they're really pressing on this city. They're bringing lots of men, they're bringing lots of artillery. You have the Wagner group here, which is a sort of mercenary group. They, they've been called in and doing fighting in this war in various parts. They were mainly present in Donbass, although they have seen limited action elsewhere. They were actually the, some of the first fighters around Bakhmut. They tried to take it themselves. But it's taking the the weight 
of a larger Russian force to sort of make these gains that we're seeing now. But whether or not Bakhmut is a major logistic hub or even the linchpin of Ukraine's defenses in the Donbass, when we consider the number of troops involved in the fighting here, which I haven't seen too many estimates for, but my own guesstimate is somewhere around in the vicinity of like at least 5,000 on each side. Uh, and, you know, this isn't all of them immediately next to the city, but, you know, in the area around the city as well. So we're talking a lot of troops, especially when we look at the numbers for the operations in this war. I mean, the Kherson Offensive, those happened in waves of ten to 15,000. And then the Kharkov Offensive was about another 15,000 or so. So given within the context of this war, 5,000 is probably a, a meaty estimate. But if this battle and this city is as important as it is being hyped up to be, then I see those numbers as being rather uh, somewhat realistic. You know? But when we look at the terrain around here, and we look at some of the numbers, again, these are my guesstimates based on some of the numbers I've seen, which vary greatly. When we look at these things, we see that even if Bakhmut is not the logistics hub, or even a linchpin in Ukraine's defenses, if Ukraine is forced out of this region, then that would open up the floodgates, enabling Russia to push deep into the heart of Ukraine. And I say that because while the Donbass is rough terrain, littered with medium-sized cities like Bakhmut itself, littered with industrial zones and suburbs, once you go past that, and I'll say for the convenience of you guys, once you go beyond the the boundaries of the Donbass, uh, not the Donbass, the Donetsk Oblast, the, the state, once you go beyond those boundaries heading westward, the terrain in Ukraine really starts to flatten out. Like, they're fighting in rough terrain right now. Uh, again, in hills and industrial zones and medium-sized cities and suburbs but once you go past that it gets really really flat so if ukraine is forced out of this region it's not that much farther before they reach flatland and in flatland the only thing you've got is a trench and that's about it a trench and whatever house you can get your hands on but that's not good defensive ground. If the Ukrainians are forced out of this region, that would inevitably open up the floodgates. And they don't have much rough terrain left behind them should they be forced out of Bakhmut. And let's, for a moment, think, what if the city is a major logistics hub? What if it, major, what if it really is a major linchpin in Ukraine's defenses? Well, that would, make, that would compromise not just the troops around Bakhmut, it would compromise all the troops in the Donbass and Luhansk. It would really put Ukraine on the back foot right as winter is beginning to set in. Again, it would open up the floodgates for Russia to push deep into the heart of Ukraine. So, with winter setting in and Russia's reinforcements arriving en masse, 
and the Ukrainians being thrown into the, the Dark Ages, because Russia keeps bombing their energy, and the potential that this, the fall of this city will compromise their entire defensive line, that, is, that being of the Ukrainians, these are uh, these come together to form the perfect environment for a winter offensive. The perfect environment for a winter offensive. So we'll definitely have to keep our eyes on this. Like, I, it's, it's, uh, it's been an eventful week in geopolitics, I'll say that much. Like, I did, I didn't have to do too much digging to get these subjects for you. I was, I was, uh, just inundated with all the stuff. And I'm like, oh, there, there's a story I can talk about. Oh, there's a story I can talk about. Oh, there's. And when it, when it came time to put the episode together, I was just writing down my thoughts on these topics that I already had in mind. And uh, what can I say? It's been very eventful. Hopefully not too eventful for the Ukrainians, but uh, I think they'd prefer for the war to be over. And so would the Russians, but I think they have different. I think they have different ideas on what over is going to mean. And one of them is going to be right. The other one will not be a country afterwards. But lots of things happening. Especially with that Turkey-Syria situation. I think this is going to spiral out of hand. And it is, you know, getting a little concerning. That Turkey is increasingly targeting these Kurdish minorities. Although I can't exactly say that the Kurds have done literally nothing because these militant groups, which are the real issue here, not necessarily the Kurds themselves, they have been a pain in Turkey's ass for quite some time. But now Turkey is in such a strong position geostrategically that they can get other countries to make concessions on handing over these militants to the Turkish authorities for Turkey to do with them as they see fit. So, and this is some really really wild speculation here but will we see a genocide of the Kurds in Turkey I don't, I don't think we're at that point and I don't think the Turks want to get to that point but looking at the trajectory it is something that could happen especially when you factor in that uh, the Turks did the Armenian genocide first uh, and that one got forgotten Everyone remembers the Holocaust. No one remembers the Armenians. So, yeah, well, it's something to think about. I don't. I don't think it's going to happen, and I hope it doesn't. And I don't think Turkey is necessarily on track for doing that. But given the trajectory here, I mean, they they extorted Sweden and Finland into giving them concessions on that specific topic when they tried to join NATO. And now, they're going after the Kurds directly in Syria. Given this trajectory, will we see Turkey cross that line? I hope they don't. I don't think they will. I don't, I don't believe they will. But given that trajectory, it's something, it's something worth speculating on as a possibility. But in other, in other cases... And, well, I should say, in other words, we have a very, very eventful week with lots of things to talk about and think about. 
I mean, especially this escalation, especially the, the Turkey-Kurd escalation and what that's going to mean for Turkey moving forward. Again, as they invest heavily in move their southward expansion, that's going to mean some different things than it would if they decided, hey, we're going to go into the Balkans or, hey, we're going to go into Ukraine or, or you know, we're, we're going to go into the Caucasus. They're not doing those. They're not doing those. They're, they're still a little present in the Caucasus. The migration issue is sort of settled down a little bit, namely the migrants coming from the Middle East going into Europe. And that's sort of settled down, so those have sort of fallen off the table. And Turkey is no longer supporting Ukraine like they were in the beginning. So it's looking like Turkey is focusing on its south. The Russians have partially bribed them into doing so with the gas hub proposal, so... Turkey now has an in- a vested interest in not pissing the Russians off. They'll get rich if they don't. So, lots of developments. We'll definitely have to keep our eyes on that. And hopefully, Taiwan's election results can lead to some positive change for them. Uh, we'll see how America ends up responding in the end. Although, again, I think, uh, I, I think it's going to end badly for them too. But hopefully they can get in the driver's seat. Hopefully things calm down in Syria and we might actually see the end of the Syrian civil war like we're seeing in Ethiopia. And maybe we're witnessing the beginnings of the end for the war in Ukraine as well. But we'll just have to wait and see. And that is all I have for you today, my lovely listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And... The world is changing, folks, but we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Tyshawn Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Mm-hmm.